there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. It's been more than a decade in the writing and this book was like nothing I'd ever written before. I wanted to write a book that could be somebody's favourite book. I'm always looking for the point in a book where it's, you're feeling life in it. All your best ideas rely on you stumbling across something and keeping it. In writing, I get to be a kid again. I'm most alive when I'm, I'm writing and I'm happiest when I'm writing. I was fighting for the world championship and myself to write this book and I'm nearly at the end of it now. I, I, I'm both completely sick of the sight of it, but I don't want to let it go either. You're listening to the Rights for Women podcast, where we talk all things women in writing and women's rights. I'm Kel Butler, the newbie writer with a first draft fiction novel under my belt and another one just begun. And I'm Pamela Cook, published author and mentor with four novels already released and a fifth on its way. Both of us are mums. My kids are older, all um, in their late teens and early 20s, and Kel's are young. Uh, We're both feminists, we're proud advocates for Room to Read and podcasting partners. (laughs) And last year we chose to launch this podcast, Rights for Women, with only really one clear goal in mind. That was to celebrate women's voices and support women's rights. To be a positive force for the encouragement and empowerment of women and women writers everywhere. Um, It's all about women writing and the female story. And living life as women on the Rights for Women podcast. So this week we've got something very special, Kel, something different for Rights for Women. We've actually got a man on the podcast. Oh, my goodness. This is Rights for Women. (laughs) Shock horror. Do tell. (laughs) So this is the first in our series of Women Rights for Women Presents, which will be under its own banner at some point. (laughs) But um, it's actually the launch of StoryFest, a new regional writers' festival which I am happily involved in, which is starting in Milton next year in New South Wales. And we decided to see if we could get a really exciting person to open the event for us, to launch it, even though it's almost a year out, uh, just to attract some attention and to let you know publishers and sponsors know that we're really serious about creating a great festival next year. And the person we managed to get to say yes was Marcus Zuzak. Because he's just launching a new book after, what, nine years or something, isn't it, Pam? Well, it's 13 years since The Book Thief came out. Oh, yes. So, yeah, I know it's probably around that time that he's been working on this book. Mm. And, yeah, he's, I mean, of course, he had enormous success with The Book Thief and we'll hear more about that in the interview. But um, this one, new one is called Bridge of Clay and it's out in October. And, yeah, it's hailed, you know, the publisher, of course, is hailing it as the book of the decade. Um, and yeah, probably rightly so, since it's taken that long to, for him to produce another book after the book thief. And I think in the intro to this, I remember the um, they were saying that it isn't even getting released until October, but there's an exorbitant amount of pre-orders that have already been put in for this mm-hmm. book, Bridge of Clay, isn't mm-hmm. there? Yeah, five hundred thousand worldwide. It's probably gone up since then in the last week. I'd say I think it will be climbing daily. Um, which will definitely make sure make, mean that it goes to number one the day it's released because pre-orders all are totaled up on release day and then, bang, you know, the book hits the charts. So, um, yeah, and, you know, not surprisingly because The Book Thief was such a runaway success, I'm 
I don't, the last figure I heard, which was quite a while ago, I think was 18 million worldwide, but it's probably more than that now. Um, mm. And then I think there was a regeneration of those sales, of course, when the movie came out. Yep. Um, yeah. So, no, it was exciting. It was great to be there on the night to listen to Marcus. I mean, as listeners will hear in this interview, and I think as you commented on listening to it, because you couldn't be there, unfortunately, he's just such a beautiful, humble uh, interesting person to listen to, you know, and just I think for both readers and writers, this interview is really inspirational because it just shows you a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on with writing a book like this or any Ab book. Absolutely. As a writer, I actually got a lot out of listening to this through the edit. I was like, I love those episodes where I don't mind listening to it a 100 times because each time I know it's just drilling it mm -hmm. into my brain. And this was one of those episodes where everything he has to say, you're right, he's beautifully soft-spoken, so mm. impassioned, and uh, it all carries with it some little glimmer that you can take into your own writing. And the whole um, comment that you made about it being interesting to everyone, my partner's not a reader or a writer, but I was editing this episode and I didn't have my headphones on for some reason and it was quite loud. And he came running up the stairs because it was at a part at the end of this uh, talk where he gives an anecdote involving eggs and his father and that's all oh. I'm going to say. And <laughs> I turned around and there was my partner and I've looked at him. I'm just like, yes. And he's just like, no, no, no. I just have to hear how this story ends. This guy is so interesting. And I'm like, this is Marcus Susak. You should read his book. <laughs> Can I also say to everyone, massive cred to Pamela Cook here because this is Pam's first record in the field by herself. <laughs> she did a magnificent job and I'm just like, woohoo, go Pam. So proud of you, girl. Not without a lot of texts on the night, Kel. You didn't tell everyone that. I mean, times I texted you, is this the right plug? Am I putting this in right? Are these levels right? <laughs> We got there. And, yeah, another thing, lovely thing at Storyfest, Kel, was we had a, a wonderful local musician there, Chloe Dad, and she did some sort of intro music for us and then she also played while Marcus was doing some amazing book signings that he just took so much time with. But anyway, um, yeah, so we've got Chloe doing a little snippet of her song Nurture, an original song, and Chloe was also part of the Triple J Unearth program, so she's really one to watch and she's just got so much talent. And the other thing that you'll hear is Meredith Jaffe, who is our um, director of Storyfest, doing a little bit of an intro to the audience on what Storyfest is and what we're hoping to achieve. So, and then we'll get to Marcus. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Storyfest. Lovely to see you all here. Lovely to see you all having a nice, relaxing time. In case you haven't seen me before, although I have to say I've never been on the Milton stage before, so here we go. I'll just tap dance for you. My name is Meredith Jaffe. It is my immense privilege and pleasure to be the inaugural festival director for Storyfest. An event we plan will be on your calendars for many years to come. Can you also please join me in thanking the wonderfully talented Chloe Dad? Isn't she wonderful? <laughs> She'll also be back later to play some more music for us, so that's wonderful as well. 
Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight, the Murramurang people of the UN Nation. I'm honoured to be on their ancestral lands. I acknowledge and pay respect to their elders of the community, past, present and future, and extend my recognition to their descendants who may be here tonight. I also wanted to add that it's particularly pertinent to acknowledge that the Maramurang people have a culture that is not only tens of thousands of years old, but they continue to tell their stories through age-old ceremonies, music, dance and celebration. Story Fest is an idea that has been percolating for quite some time. Locals will be well aware of the enormous work put together by Ali Pakes, Sarah Eastway and their team in saving Milton Library. Indeed, all of us readers are incredibly grateful to the Friends of Milton Library for not only restoring library services to Milton, but growing them as well. Therefore, it was only a matter of time, really, that this passion for books that we all shared um, would extend into some kind of festival. But the more we talked about it, the more we said, well, we didn't really just want to have another literary festival. We wanted to embrace everything that we loved about storytelling. Because the unique thing about this area is we have so many incredibly vibrant, boundary-pushing, challenge-embracing artists of all varieties. And we wanted to make sure that our festival celebrated everyone's talents and not just the writers. So rather than add another literary festival to the calendar, we were very clear from the get-go that this would be a festival that would celebrate storytelling in all its forms. Telling stories be it through prose, poetry or song, connects us with one another. It helps us understand our past and it helps us contemplate our future. Storytelling is the way we, we attempt to understand the world around us and our place in it. So this is one of the driving factors behind the fact that we've made a big deal about the fact that we are paying our artists and facilitators to come to the festival because we wanted to demonstrate that we value their time and their contribution to our culture and the difference they make to all of our lives. Peter Florence is the gentleman who co-founded the Hay Literary Festival in Wales with his father Norman and he's been involved in over 200 literary, literary festivals around the globe. And he says there are only two rules for a successful festival. According to Florence, the only festivals that really work are those that are, one, deeply embedded within their communities, and two, like the rest of our lives, be it biology, political, sociology, is that diversity rules as well. And this is something that we have taken to our hearts. Storyfest... The Storyfest committee is determined that next year's inaugural festival and all those forthcoming will showcase some of the best of our nation's storytellers. If you would like to be involved in Storyfest in any way, we have a web page called Get Involved. You might want to sponsor an author or sponsor an, sponsor an artist. So this is a program where you can, you know, for a modest sum of money, go, I want to sponsor Pamela Cook <laughs> to be at the Writers' Festival. Jump on, have a look at the website. It's www.storyfest.org.au and you can register your interest and keep track of what we're doing there. Tonight is our first major fundraiser for the 2019 festival and we thank you so much, everyone, for buying tickets and supporting us. The moment you really have been waiting for. Before I introduce Suzanne Leal, 
I do want to say on behalf of the StoryFest committee that I would like to extend a huge thank you to Marcus and Mika Zizak who have bent over backwards to make tonight happen. It's horrendous when you're an author of such scale and scope as Marcus trying to own your own diary and he has shuffled and moved and squiggled and done everything possible because so he so wanted to be here tonight. So I'm sure, as you, I'm sure you also appreciate that on the eve of publication of Bridge of Clay, this is a very big ask. So that, this is just from me and the committee personally. Thank you very much to Marcus and to Mika, where she's sitting down here, yes. Um, now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Suzanne Leal. She and I have been crossing paths at literary festivals for a very long time. We've both been facilitators for a very long time and we're both authors as well. Suzanne Lil is Brisbane-born but Wollongong-raised. Thanks to her father's career, she's also spent time in France and Germany and she speaks both of those languages. Very early on, she realised that she wasn't particularly mathematical, kind of sporty... Um, and she was never really going to cut it uh, in any other world except the world that dealt, dealt with words. Originally that meant that she started life as a criminal lawyer. But she's also worked in pra- she's also practised in areas of child protection, refugee law and uh, criminal law. But eventually she has graduated to her first passion which is storytelling. She's a regular interviewer at the Sydney Writers' Festival and uh, also has the rather onerous job and uh, important job as she's senior judge for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and has been for some years. Her curiosity about hidden stories and secret lives sparked her interest in the lives of her Czech landlords, Fred and Eva Perga, and inspired her first novel, Border Street, which was commended for the Asher Literary Award. And more recently, curiosity prompted Suzanne to explore the intrigues of a small coastal community in her second novel, The Teacher's Secret. Please join me in welcoming Suzanne Leo. Before we introduce Marcus, I just wanted to put you on the spot just a little bit. Oh no. <laughs> you actually have a personal Marcus Zizak story. I do have a personal Marcus Zizak story. Would you like to hear my personal Marcus Zizak story? <laughs> so, for any of you out there who are writing or have been writing for a while and suddenly find themselves in the publishing industry, it's a bit of a daunting thing. That's where I found myself in 2006 when my first book, Border Street, was about to come out. My publisher rang me up and she said, uh, hey, Suzanne, do you know any writers who could, like, do an endorsement for your book, say how good it is? No. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, maybe I do. At that time, I was going through my rock festival phase where I would go to see a lot of rock festivals with my friend. One festival had a writer's uh, gig as well and I walked with my friend and her friend, who was a writer called Tegan uh, Bennett Daylight, you might know, uh, to see a bloke called Marcus, Marcus Zuzak. And I got to speaking to Marcus after his gig and um, he was very friendly, he was lovely. He told me he'd written a book called uh, The Book Thief. It was new. And this sprang back to my mind when I said to my publisher, actually, I do know a writer, Marcus, Marcus Zuzak. I was very naive, I think, at the time and very, uh, very green to the industry. So um, my publisher spoke to Marcus's publisher 
and God loved him. He agreed to read this book by this person he really didn't know and hadn't really heard of and provided a really lovely endorsement. And I'm going to embarrass you both by reading it. (laughs) A book that looms closer with every page. By the end, you start seeing the characters on the street and you hear their voices in your sleep. Marcus Zusak. Well done. (laughs) Take a seat. Thank you. I don't ever get to say that Marcus Zusak puff quoted my book, so go girl. (laughs) Okay. It's the man himself. I said to Marcus I was going to try and keep it short and I just take it off his publisher's website but then it's really not as short as I was hoping it was going to be. But you know what? I don't care because I think like me you probably want to just relish for one more moment how amazing this trajectory has been. Marcus Suzak is the award-winning author of five books including the international bestseller The Book Thief which spent more than a decade on the New York Times top ten and is translated into more than 40 languages, establishing Zuzak as one of Australia's most successful authors. To date, Marcus has held the number one position on Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk and the New York Times bestseller list, as well as in other countries across South America, Europe and Asia. His books... The Underdog, Fighting Reuben Wolf, When Dogs Cry and The Messenger and The Book Thief have been awarded numerous honours ranging from literary prizes, Reader's Choice Awards and prizes voted on by booksellers. As you may be aware, in 2013 The Book Thief became a movie. But in 2014, Zuzak received the American Library Association's Margaret Edwards Award for his body of work ranging from The Underdog up to The Book Thief. So when you put it in context... This wasn't an accident that the book thief became the book thief. This man was already kicking a lot of goals before that came along. So as you can also well imagine, it's been a wee while since Marcus has had a book published. His much-anticipated Bridge of Clay is set for release in October this year in the USA, the UK and Australia with foreign translation and the rights to follow. It's already sold or pre-sold 500,000 copies in hardback in the US alone and the book isn't even out yet. On that note, will you please join me in welcoming Marcus Suzak? I know you're going to hate me for that. I had to tell them. You're not going to tell them. So here we are in Milton Theatre. Who would have thought it? Did you imagine yourself up here, Milton Theatre, at the inaugural launch of Storyfest? Oh, no, I'm glad anyone's turned up at all. It's... Uh... It's, uh, these sort of nights always take you back. Thanks for coming, everyone. I mean, I know you've all got so many things you could be doing tonight. And uh, you do go back to the beginning where things really started. And I remember when my first book came out in the year 2000 and uh, I got sent over to Western Australia to do some things in libraries and I got sent to Margaret River and everyone said, oh, Margaret River. And I was doing a reading in the library and, uh, and they said, oh, it's a great town, you know, we love the arts and great reading town. And, of course, you know, you can pretty much figure out what happened. I went to do the, the reading in the library and, of course, no one turned up. <laughs> um, that's not even the best part. The best part is the librarian still made me read from my book. <laughs> Just to her. 
And uh, if that had happened tonight, I would have just said, no, nah, I'm going to the pub. So, uh, so I guess you learn by those things happening. So, uh, so no, it's just a real thrill to be here and, uh, and thanks for, for having me. In fact, you're really a Milton boy, a Milton local, an almost Milton local. What's your connection with Milton, I'd never, Marcus? I, I'd never say local because um, I've never lived here and I'm always careful about being a local anywhere uh, because I just feel like people get a bit silly about ownership. There are rules, of, aren't there? Yeah, and uh, but no, I've known this area since I was six years old and just fell in love with it already then and so I've been really lucky. I mean, I think this is one of the great treasures of the earth and uh, and to be able to spend more than three decades coming down here is a, a real privilege and that's why a night like this is sort of the icing on the cake. What do you love about it? What is it about Milton that, that you find most compelling? I mean, it's just the whole area. I just, I, you know, I'll be specific and, or I'll just take one small part to tell the whole. I just love getting up in the morning here really early and walking my two dogs uh, anywhere from the beach to, you know, the hinterland or wherever. It's just that there's so much... I think the mornings here are especially special. There's something about the sun, there's something about the colour of the vegetation and the nature here which is somehow softer than Sydney. That are, Anyway, when I woke up today, that's what I felt. Yeah, uh, and there aren't as many complete bastards. <laughs> so, uh, I, actually, I just saw my son laughing at that and, uh, <laughs> and that, that's probably, you know, that's the... If that's that's probably all I'll get tonight from him, but uh, you know, it's, it's you know, I just I don't want to go too far now, but no, there's just something special, and I think people want to protect it, and so it feels it feels like that when you come here. But Marcus, to you, your new book Bridge of Clay is finished, and the publication date has now been confirmed for October. Does this make you feel really excited or really nervous? I don't know. Uh, sometimes the best thing is to say I don't know when you know the when you don't know the answer. And at the moment, I'm still doing my very last edits. And more how I feel is not I'm not relieved yet. Yeah. I'm not happy yet. I'm never happy uh, with a book. And it's been more than a decade in the writing. And this book was like nothing I'd ever written before in the sense of. I wanted it to be better. And people would say, you don't have to write a better book than The Book Thief. You just have to write a different book. And I'd say, well, no, I've always tried to write a better book. Why shouldn't this one be? But this one felt like I was, I was fighting for the world championship and myself to write this book. And I'm nearly at the end of it now. And I'm in that stage where I'm, I want to... I, I'm both completely sick of the sight of it, but I don't want to let it go either. Mm. And uh, and so I think there are a lot of mixed feelings. And I've never been that kind of author who says, "Oh, I dream of my characters, and I can't, I just can't leave them. They just come to me in <laughs> dreams." I was like, "Oh, I'm sick of them from the moment <laughs> I look at them because uh, they give me so many problems." But uh, this time around, and I know when I get to the end of rereading and rereading and reworking this book and when I look I get to the end I know I'm going to miss them and uh, 
I, and I think that's how much this book means to me. When you say you know you're going to miss them, once you've finished those final edits, once the book can't be changed, is that when they leave you? Because you'll be talking about them for ages. But do they leave you when the written page, when the form is done? I think I've learned now that nothing ever leaves you. It's a little bit like family. <laughs> you know, you just can't, you can't change, in a way you can't change people, you can't, and, and in this sense I can't change myself in that I work so hard to get the characters as right as I can make them that I think you always keep a part of that struggle mm. and you keep the joy as well. And uh, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm one of the luckiest writers in the world. I, I consider that I can make a living out of writing I can, even my, even the times I hate it, I love hating it. And uh, when I'm wallowing in how hopeless I am, and uh, it's a bit like surfing. You're like, how can I always be the shittest surfer out here? And it's like that with writing too. Like, why am I, why can't I write quicker? Why can't I write better? But it's what brings you back. It's what brings you back and mm. brings you back because, like I said, you're always fighting to, to, to find the best version of yourself. So let's go right back then. When did you first decide that you wanted to be a writer? I was 16 and I was a big fan of when I was in high school we had to read the novels of S.E. Hinton and she was 16 when she wrote The Outsiders and Rumble, then Rumblefish, that was then, this is now and, um, and I thought I'm going to do that. I want to, and I loved those books, and they made me feel alive. It was like that magic act of turning pages and turning pages, and you don't realise you're turning pages. You're mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. and I thought that's what I want to do with my life. And of course, I tried to write my first book then, and those eight pages <laughs> could be entered into a competition for the worst book ever written. And it was about a boy who had some sort of cyst in his head. And uh, he could explode at any time. <laughs> and on page eight, I had nothing left. So he had to go. And, uh, and so I've, I've still got those eight pages somewhere. Oh, I, did. I think there's a publisher in the room. The eight pages are still there. I think it's... Um, but you've got to be embarrassed about where you started. And I look back at then the three manuscripts I wrote that got rejected from publishers... And I'm so glad they didn't get published now because they weren't good enough. And I, I'd seen books that were probably of similar quality get published and I don't think it did anything good for those writers who were around my age as well because they thought, I've made it. And, and I was delivering books of similar standard getting rejected and I thought, no, I've got to do better. And I, had, I think the hardest thing about being a writer is you know what you love and you know what made you want to do it but you can't just copy that. You've got to find yourself. And I remember having a period of three or four years where I just couldn't finish anything. I couldn't even finish a first chapter. And I thought, God, I'm lazy. You know, it's a, the, the writer's intent to always punish him or herself for laziness, for hopelessness, for all these things. But I think what I've looked back and realised now is that, no, I was just really trying to find my own voice. And it's not easy to do. And now I look at it, the way I think about writing now, I can't even remember what your question was, um, but what, because um, I've gone so far off the track, but I remember when I was a kid I did athletics and I remember running a race once, the 100 metres, and I thought I'd won 
and I got put in sixth position. And I was all, you know, I was upset and all this. And I went and I complained to my dad. And my dad said to me, you only, he said, you know what, I actually thought you won as well, but you made one mistake. You didn't win by enough. You've got to win by so much that they can't take it off you. And I think about writing like that now, not in a sense of being better than anyone mm. or anything like that, but to write so much like myself so that no one could have written that. And that's what I feel. If not, I don't care if... I care if the book Thief is good, for example, but I know that no one else could have written that book and that's what I'm trying to do. Your earlier books, the first three books, uh, have the protagonist of Cameron Wolfe. Was he your voice? Was that the first time you found the voice that satisfied you? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I just... I mean, those books started because I couldn't write anything else and I'd been trying to write this great Australian novel or something. And then I was just... I went for a walk and uh, I did go for these long rambling walks when I was in my early 20s. And, uh, and I just thought of these two boys who tried to... I thought... I'd just been to the dentist. I got one of those slips in the mail and it said... You know where it says you've not been to the dentist for such and such months? <laughs> months was crossed out and it said four years. And so <laughs> I thought I'll go and then I got fillings and I... They really and I paid cash and I thought, geez, a lot of money is going through these dental surgeries. And mm -hmm. I got this idea of these two idiot brothers who would try to rob their local dentist. <laughs> so the first line of my first ever published book was, We were watching telly when we decided to rob the dentist. And <laughs> of course they go there and they want to rob the dentist. They got a cricket bat and a baseball bat, and there's this beautiful dental nurse behind the mm -hmm. counter. And so they end up getting checkups instead. And, uh, <laughs> and the appointments get made and then they go back and, of course, she's not there. It's the really hulking dental nurse who's there. And, and that... So, in a way, I wasn't searching for a voice. I, I think that's... And the beauty of writing is all your best... All your best things are usually accidents and they come to you because you're at your desk writing. You don't normally get your best ideas walking along the beach you get your best ideas sitting at your desk writing. It's a bit like if, if someone said, I want to get better at running, you, I wouldn't say, well, sit on the couch for a while or go for a walk on the beach and think about running. <laughs> I would say, just go out and run. And that's how you get better. And that's how your book gets better incrementally, um, just by working. And that's, I think, how you find your voice. And... I think in the case of Bridge of Clay, I had all these problems with this book and all these characters and, and I got to this point halfway through about three or four years ago where I just... All these bits... I, I go, that bit was really good. That was really... <coughs> sorry, that was really hard. I get to the next bit and I go, it's going to be easy now and then it would just be dead. Mm -hmm. And so then I just went, all right, this is how we're going to do it. It's either alive or it's dead. That's the, that's the criteria. And so that's what you're looking... I'm always looking for the point in a book where it's, you're feeling life in it. You're feeling life. But, and sometimes it comes easily and sometimes it comes with a lot of difficulty. And is it as easy as that? You keep the life bits and you get rid of the dead bits? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, so it's either, right, cut the dead bits out or find a way quick to make them alive. And because the problem was I was taking forever to write that book and I was just sinking and sinking and sinking. And the best thing that actually happened was my wife said to me, 
right? You've got one week <laughs> to get this back on track or else you and Clay, the character, you know, I think you need a break from each other. And having it taken off me was the best mm. thing that could have happened because suddenly I, I think in that case it was right. If you want to make this be alive again, you've really got to get in there and get your hands dirty. And that's what I did. I stopped worrying so much. You can put a lot of effort into worrying about your writing or you can just put a lot of effort into writing. And I think we do this, and I, I want to make something really clear, and that is I don't think of writing, for me anyway, as, a, as an art form. I'm a tradesman, really, and I just go to work and I just keep chipping away and chipping away and, uh, and you're, just, you're waiting for the moment to come. You're waiting for... But it won't come unless you're there doing the work. And, and so that's, that's pretty much, you know, all that effort. Most of the, the biggest effort is just getting to the desk and, uh, and, ma and making that commitment to it and being prepared to fail. I think writing is just always testing you. And, you know, people always get upset when I say, oh, my brother hasn't even read any of my books. And, uh, and they go, oh, that's terrible. And I say, yeah, well, I don't go and look at any of the houses he's painted. <laughs> you know, and so, and I still think it's it's like a it's a trade that you're always working on and and trying to to get right. And uh, you know the fact, but you're also risking a lot by doing it. You're risking, you know, people criticise you, people don't like your book, people, you know, and uh, finishing a book is no easy thing. But if it was easy, then everybody would do it. Let's talk about commas, Marcus. I'm going to read the first sentence, or the first couple of sentences from the book The Messenger. It's a corker of an opening, opening couple of sentences. The gunman, comma, is useless. I know it, he knows it, the whole bank knows it. What's happening, Marcus? And then we'll get to the comma. <laughs> Sorry, I just tuned out there. Uh, <laughs> What's happening in that scene? Well, it's funny. That's another beginning. I seem to have... I think as a writer, you, you have... We're all attracted to different things. And I know there's a book by Stephen King about writing and he says we all have a sort of drain pipe that catches ideas and, we're all, he's, and he's drawn to horror. And I seem to be drawn to running and um, stealing. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and that beginning came from sitting out in, the, in Kayama, outside the bank, where there was a 15-minute parking zone. And you can... I just want to just say how much it pains me to say this, but it wasn't even my idea. My wife said to me, what if you were in that bank when it was getting robbed and your car was out in the 15-minute parking zone? <laughs> how would you get out to move your car? <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I go, oh, shit, that's a really good idea. <laughs> I have to use it, but yet it hurts me to use it because how can I give you the credit? And, uh, and that's how that whole scene came... And that first chapter of The Messenger is one of the... It's probably the only case in my whole writing career where first, that chapter just almost wrote itself. And the comma between the gunman and is useless shouldn't really be there. And, <laughs> and uh, in, I know in other versions around the world... It isn't. Ah, now... I fight with editors about commas all the time. Yes, well, that was my question because you use... For, for me, you use the commas often as a metre 
as a rhythm, as music. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, especially in Bridge of Clay in the new book where, like, I'll have a comma somewhere and it's, or a word. And mm-hmm. I say, maybe we sh- an editor will say, should we take that word out? And I say, how it, it the, whole, the whole sentence revolves around that word and you want to take it out. It doesn't work with, without that word in it. Or they want to put a word in. I say, no, if you put that word in, the rhythm's all wrong. And, uh, and I especially... I, it, it's so much to me, it's not about just the story. It's not about what is said. It is about how everything flows and mm-hmm. how every... So, and what I would also say is if I take that comma out of that sentence, I don't just have to remodel the sentence. Mm-hmm. I remodel the sentence before it, the, the sentence after it. I have to rewrite the whole... Or not rewrite, but I then have to edit the whole paragraph and then I have to edit the paragraph before it and after it. It's and then I do the page. And so... It, so and just keep the comma. Keep the just comma. Just keep the comma in most mm-hmm. cases, although I'm generally fairly easy to work with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. In preparing for this event, I've been reading your work again, but I've also been listening to audiobooks. Audiobooks are fantastic, you know, when you're running, when you're doing the washing, when you're in the car. And the rhythm of the writer really comes to the fore in the audiobook. And in fact, in the audiobook with The Messenger, the comma works. It's Ed Kennedy. The gunman is useless. I know it. He knows it. So it becomes music. And it's the same thing, I think, with The Book Thief. Now, of course, The Book Thief was published after The Messenger in 2005. Who in the audience has read The Book Thief? Who's read it twice? Keep your hands up. Three times? Keep your hands up. If you were our hands down, we've still got a few, we'll assume that's five and upwards. So it's a book that keeps people reading over and over again. Have you thought about why this book in particular uh, has encouraged young people and adults to read it more than once? I don't know because I just... I'd never ever want to take anything for granted, so I'm, I want to, I'm a bit careful about how to answer that uh, because all I do is I just, I just write it mm. and then the world decides or the reader decides. And so I can't... At, at the same time, uh, you know, I, there are so many people who don't like that book. There are, and I, I always put it in context of someone like J.K. Rowling where you get people, oh, Harry, people getting so really bagging Harry Potter and and it's because so many people love it and Mm. so I think what you're doing the whole time and and this is where and I can't thank people enough for having read the book because usually usually when you start out writing you expect no one to know who you are no one to care who you are no one to have read any of your books and then for people to do that it's really generous and uh, and so for me all I knew when I was writing that book that I let go of Mm of things. I let go of the... I, I, I was trying to... I started out trying to write a 100-page a novella and, you know, and for the people who have read it, you can tell I got a bit out of hand. I mean, it ends up being <laughs> 580 pages and, uh, and I think what happened... So a couple of different things. I thought no-one would read that book. I thought it's set in Nazi Germany, it's narrated by death, nearly everybody dies... 
Oh, and it's 580 pages long, you know. Uh, I imagine someone trying to recommend that to their friends. You know, I thought, no one's going to want to read it. I wouldn't have gone to the... Sh I wouldn't have bought it. And so I let go of the idea of someone reading it. And so I just thought, well, no one's going to read it. You might as well make it exactly how it should be. And if anything, I think whether people realise it or not, maybe that's the thing that mm -hmm. people understand in that book. I think they know that the person who wrote it was so... that it meant everything to them. And to me, that's what it was. I think maybe... I've, I would often define it as I'd written four books, I'd written five books, four that really mean something to me and one that means everything to me. And that book's The Book Thief. And, and I have to say now, after 13 years since that book's come out, that Bridge of Clay actually means even more to me than The Book Thief, mm. which is... I think because it was probably... Maybe because it was so hard. Maybe if I'd written it in a year, maybe not. But I think maybe that's what draws people to the book thief. I think they can see what it meant to me to write it. So if you can say that about Bridge of Clay, you must be pleased with it, are you? No, that book will have 20% improvement in it till the day I die. <laughs> and, uh, and, but that doesn't mean I, don't, I can't love it. And I do... I, I love it, but I see fault with it, and as I do with The Book Thief. In The Book Thief, I went too far sometimes with the, you know, death interrupting things and so on. But then I sort of think I was happy to err on that side because I thought probably better to have gone too far than to not go far enough. And I think it was a book that demanded that. And I feel like um, the new book is, is similar to that in that way. I think I'm just proud of the effort. I think I can love the effort, even if I don't always love the actual result. Those of you who have read the book Thief will know it's the story of, uh, story of Liesel Memminger, who's a German girl who lives with her foster parents in Munich during World War II. Like Liesel, um, Marcus, your mother is German and she also grew up with foster parents. Is Liesel's story your mother's story? Um, in some ways it is, but I think the moment you fictionalise something, it's not you don't see that person's face anymore. So a lot of the things that happen, or a percentage of the things that happen in the book thief did happen to my mum. But the moment her brother dies, which is a, a Liesl's mother die, um, brother dies, at the start of the book thief, I didn't see my mum anymore because that didn't happen to her. Mm. It happened in another piece, another story of someone else we know. And so suddenly, I think as soon as you start making something up, it, it takes on a life of its own. So mm. I never saw it as my mum anymore. I never saw the neighbour as my dad's, where I'd used a lot of my dad's stories as well to cobble that all together. And uh, they just became themselves, and I think that's what you want as a writer of fiction anyway. I, I, I don't think I could write a biography or non-fiction because my, my writing instincts, much in that, Steve, like that what I was talking about with Stephen King, is just to imagine and to lie and to, to use cunning uh, in a way. It's sort of maybe... It, some, you, you do feel... One of my um, favourite writers is Michael Chabon, who wrote The Amazing mm. Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And he, he's the sort of writer... He, one of my favourite lines from a book is from his book where it says, the Rotterdam... So he's talking about an ocean liner coming into New York Harbour and he says... The Rotterdam came into New York Harbour like a mountain wearing a dinner jacket. And <laughs> such a great image. Mm. And to me, that's a writer who's done the work and suddenly it's just like he's in the sandpit 
playing. Mm. And that's what I'm always trying to get to when I'm writing. And when I, I think of that idea or think of that strange image that shouldn't make sense but makes sense in a different way, that's when I'm just a kid. And I think that's what I love about being writing, no matter the subject, no matter if it's a book supposedly for younger people or for adults or whatever, I think in writing I get to be a kid again. And, uh, and I think that's what I love. I'm most alive when I'm, I'm writing and I'm happiest when I'm writing well. I'm not that happy if I'm writing and it's not going well, but that's better than not writing at all. Could you not write at all? Oh, probably. <laughs> it's the easiest job surf? in the world to not do. <laughs> <laughs> and you would think, though, that I, mm. the problem is I'm not, I'm not useful if I'm not writing. If, I, if I'm not writing, I just want to go back to bed. I don't use excuses like mow the lawn or uh, vacuum or anything mm. like that. I just feel like going back to bed. And, uh, and so, no, I think I, I just... I think it's probably true. When, when the idea of Bridge of Clay had been taken away from me and my wife said to me that, that like, the most sinister words you could ever say... Okay, sinister's a bit strong. Uh, the, 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 the scariest words she said to me, maybe you should start a blog. Oh, actually, I've got a blog. I just never write on it. She said, maybe you should write your blog. I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get back to writing that book uh, because writing on a blog is just uh, torture for me anyway. And, uh, and so I can't just... The thing is, though, I can't... Like there are, I, you, you look at, say, sing, a singer like Bob Dylan who just... Or a, a writer like Joyce Carol Oates, you can just tell they just always have to be writing. It's like breathing. And I don't think there are many writers like that. I think most writers have to drag themselves to the desk because it's... And I like that because it's a challenge. I don't think I could live without the challenge is, yes. what, I, is what I mean. But I could live... And, and my challenge happens to be writing and it's what I love and it's the only thing I can do well enough to make a living. So, um, so that's what I'm not even stuck with. I, I do love it and, uh, and I love the possibilities. Let's give some statistics for the audience. The statistics for the book Thief, it's sold 16 million copies worldwide, it's published in 32 foreign language territories and it's spent 500 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Was it an immediate success, Marcus? Sorry, was, was it? Was it an immediate success? Before I even answer that, I've got a better statistic for you. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm out of the, date, clearly. The, no, no. <laughs> the, the new book, having taken 13 years to write, I, I worked out that it's something like 128,624 words and, you know, the amount of days in those 13 years <laughs> is such and such amount of uh, days, which comes out as, as an average of something like 1.9 words per day. <laughs> but they are great <laughs> words, Marcus. Not even two. Not even two. But almost, and almost two. Which is when my daughter, she said to me one day, we were talking about work and, oh, I'm working so hard. And she just looked at me over, <laughs> over the cereal box. You? <laughs> work? <laughs> I said, yeah, it is actually a job. And, uh, and so, no, I mean, as far as The Book Thief goes, to me, it's just a, it's kind of a magical... I mean, from, for me, it's a... In my writing life, it's kind of a magical book, and it's the sort of book you dream of having, where 
especially when you didn't think anyone was going to read it. And suddenly, you know, 13 years later, you're still here. And I'm here because of the book thief. It's such a gift. And, uh, and so I'm just really lucky to have it. And, and it's funny because I mentioned J.K. Rowling before and you have people come up. Like, you, you know, you run into a guy you played football against or with as a, when you were growing up and they say, oh, gee, I bet you wish you'd written Harry Potter, you know, which is the worst <laughs> thing you can say to any writer. Like, he's a plumber. You know, I felt like saying, well, I bet you wish you ran the biggest plumbing business in Sydney. And, uh, and he would say, oh, no, I'm just happy doing what I do. My answer to that question is, no, I'm really glad J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter because that's such a gift to the world. And all the statistics and all the ideas of how many copies you've sold, you, you can never take it for granted and you can never be flippant about it. So I think for me, I set out, and I got lost in an earlier answer and now I've found what I wanted to say, which was I just wanted... I think I set out... I, I, I wanted to write a book that could be somebody's favourite book mm-hmm. and that you've got to... Like, how hard is... It's so hard to write someone's favourite book. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird has been written mm-hmm. and, and so many other great books. You, you're probably going to fall short, but you have to try. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for me, that, that was always the intent, to try to write a book that would be a loved book, you know, because the books I love are all on the top shelf... Um, at home and and so that's the kind of book I was trying to write and didn't think anyone would read it and so you just it's a bonus that anybody has. And what was the moment when something changed and it was the success that it's become? Was there a particular moment that you can identify? Yeah it was actually morning television in America. I went on a the book had been out here for six months. I went on this TV show Good Morning America. I was interviewed by... It was one of those classic America, only in America stories. It was St Patrick's Day. I went to New York. I was, thir- I was 29, I think, and I was 30. But I still felt 14, you know, and, and I was in the big bad city and we get St Patrick's Day and we get into the lift to go up to the TV station and there were... You could have fit six racehorses in this lift and there were dancing girls in sequins. There were... There was a family, there was a, there was a reality TV show on at the time called Little People in a Big World and it was a family that was half little people and half normal sized people and they, they were, it was a whole reality show about they were in the lift and, and uh, then there were dogs in the lift wearing spandex outfits and then there was me from, you know, from Australia, you know, from the suburbs of Australia and I got onto this show and it ended up being a really respected journalist interviewing me and those three minutes changed my life. It was, one, it was one of those moments you could say that changed everything because that morning, I don't know what number... Because Amazon, when it was just a book-selling site and not Swiss Army knives, every single thing you could buy on the planet, uh, when it was that... Um, it was a big thing to get mm-hmm. in the top hundred yeah. at Amazon, and you know you'd look at your you'd look at another book of yours and it'd be number five hundred and sixty six thousand. But because of that three minute interview, where this guy he said he'd re- he'd actually read the book, which is not that mm-hmm. common, uh, and then he quoted the book and then he read from the book and then he said the book made him cry, and that was when I could see my publisher jumping up and down in the corner. <laughs> 
So I was like, what the hell is she doing? I've never seen her run, <laughs> let alone jump. And, uh, and then that morning the book started going up and by the end of the day it was number one at Amazon. And it was Fantastic. because of three minutes on, on, you know, you can sort of bag morning TV and I think, oh, no, let's not be too harsh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and so, and that changed every, And from there, then it got on the New York Times bestseller list. Then it didn't, like, no publisher in England wanted to publish that book prior to that moment. Mm. And I would have given it to them for nothing. <laughs> and it was my one moment mm. of darkness in my whole writing mm. career because suddenly it was oh, yeah, there are all these publishers in England who want to publish it. And suddenly I just went, well, now they're going to pay for it. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, but I still didn't ask for too much. And it was just one of those moments where it was a golden, it was just a gold, purely golden morning. And, and I remember that night and my family, that my family, we're not, you know, I've got my mum's German, my dad's Austrian. It's not... <laughs> there's not that much hugging. <laughs> or, you know, there's not that much. I mean, well, they're great, loving people, and my mum's hilarious, my dad's great. And, uh, but, you know, we, I, it had been a very long time since what I'm about to tell you happened. But I remember that night, I had uh, just such a whirlwind of a day, I suddenly realised that this book was going to be so much more successful than I ever dreamed and it was going to be something big was going to happen with this book. And I remember calling home that night or calling my mum and dad that night and telling them that I loved them. And it was because, and, and if nothing else, that was the greatest gift that this book had given me. Because even though we know all that, I just hadn't said it for a very long time. So, um, so yeah, the, so you, you don't know what gifts a book is going to give you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Such a nice audience, just <laughs> clapping. It's Milton. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Bridge of Clay. It's the story of one boy, Clay Dunbar, who tries to cope with the tragedies in his life by doing one great thing, building a bridge. Clay is the fourth of five brothers. There's Rory, there's Henry, there's Matthew, there's Clay and Tommy. And although the book is Clay's book, the narrator is his brother Matthew. To give us a bit of a feel for the Dunbar boys and their chaotic household, would you read us an early passage from the book? This is a world first, can I tell you? Sure. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Marcus. I just also want to say I wrote a lot of this book down here. and uh, I, Sorry, I didn't say anything. I, I wrote a lot of this book down here and in a way at a time where I really needed it. So it, it's sort of always linked uh, to the South Coast. Uh, so, here are the Dunbar boys, a bit of a snapshot of them. Many considered us tearaways, barbarians. Mostly they were right. Our mother was dead, our father had fled. We swore like bastards, fought like contenders and punished each other at pool, at table tennis, always on third or fourth hand tables and often set up on the lumpy grass of the backyard, at Monopoly, darts, football, cards, at everything we could get our hands on. We had a piano, no one played. Our TV was serving a life sentence. The couch was in for 20. Sometimes when our phone rang, one of us would walk out, jog along the porch and go next door. It was just old Mrs Chilman. She'd bought a new bottle of tomato sauce and couldn't get the bloody thing open. <laughs> then whoever it was would come back in and let the front door slam and life went on again. 
Yes, for the five of us, life always went on. It was something we beat into and out of each other, especially when things went completely right or completely wrong. That was when we'd get out onto Archer Street in evening afternoon. We'd walk at the city, the towers, the streets, the worried-looking trees. We'd take in the loudmouth conversations heard from pubs, houses and unit blocks, so certain this was our place. We half expected to collect it all up and carry it home, tucked under our arms... It didn't matter that we'd wake up the next day to find it gone again, on the loose, all buildings and bright light. Oh, and one more thing, possibly most important. In amongst a small roster of dysfunctional pets, we were the only people we knew of in the end to be in possession of a mule. And what a mule he was. I'm just going to... It does end over on the other page. I'm just basically... I'm just going to... I'll read on that little bit because I I would like to introduce you to Achilles the mule. (laughs) The animal in question was named Achilles and there was a backstory longer than a country mile as to how he ended up in our suburban backyard in one of the racing quarters of the city. On one hand, it involved the abandoned stables and practice track behind our house, an outdated council bylaw and a sad old fat man with bad spelling. On the other, it was our dead mother, our fled father and the youngest, Tommy Dunbar. At the time, not everyone in the house was even consulted. The mule's arrival was controversial. After at least one heated argument with Rory, Oi, Tommy, what's going on here? What? What do you mean, what? Are you shitting me? There's a donkey in the backyard. (laughs) He's not a donkey, he's a mule. What's the difference? A donkey's a donkey, a mule's a cross between... I don't care if it's a quarter horse crossed with a Shetland bloody pony. What's it doing under the clothesline? He's eating the grass. I can see that. We somehow managed to keep him. Or more to the point, the mule stayed. As was the case with the majority of Tommy's pets too, there were a few problems when it came to Achilles. Most notably, the mule had ambitions. With the rear fly screen dead and gone, he was known to walk into the house when the back door was ajar, let alone left fully open. It happened at least once a week, and at least once a week I blew a gasket. It sounded something like this. Jesus Christ! As a blasphemer, I was pretty rampant in those days, well known for splitting the Jesus and emphasising the Christ. If I've told you bastards once, I've told you a hundred goddamn times. Shut the back door. And so on. Thank you. And we heard it first. Thank you very much, Marcus. I just want to qualify. There are five boys and there are five animals. They've got the mule, Achilles. They've got a dog called Rosie. Now I'm... I'm getting lost. And I've got a goldfish called Agamemnon <laughs> and a cat called Hector. Oh, sorry, and the pigeon. pigeon is called uh, Telemachus, but they all call him T because they're so sick of the stupid names that Tommy has given the animals. <laughs> It'll be out in October. I'm sure you're all looking forward to it. We're coming almost towards the end of our time. There'll be some questions for the audience, so have them ready. I'm told that you're on the promise, Marcus, to tell the egg story. Yeah, my kids, like all kids, are really annoying. And, uh, they, I, and they're so lovely, they're so sweet. And every time we have people over, two or three people, four people, they say, tell the egg story, tell the egg story. I'm like, I can't tell it in front of two people. The next time I speak somewhere and you come, I'm going to tell the egg story. And it's this story, and I'll qualify it just by saying, when you're a writer and you, you're not making any money off your books, you can speak in high schools or primary schools to make a living. 
And so that's what I did for seven or eight years, really constantly. And you, your first priority, speaking in high schools, because my books were high school age, your first priority is to survive. <laughs> and, uh, and, my, so, and I did that by telling stories. I didn't talk about, oh, I've written this book and you should buy it. And like, no one wants to hear that, especially not 200 boys who want to kill you because it's their PE lesson <laughs> and they're coming to listen to the author uh, speak. I actually heard kids saying that on the way once. I'm not even going to tell you what they said, but it was <laughs> brutal. And I thought, all right, I've got to be on my game here. And so I would tell this story to show kids and adults actually because it's not restricted I, I don't think stories really should have an age restriction in how they work and so I'll tell this story to show how I think when I write so I'll quickly I'll do it as quickly mm -hmm. as I can I have to start the story by asking for some or, an audience question or two which is can I and I'm sorry if I'm leaving out the only children in the audience but can you put your hand up if you are an older sibling Okay, now put your hand up if you're a, a, a youngest or, or a middle sibling. Okay. <laughs> what I notice every time when I do that is that the, old, the, one, the older siblings always put their hands up like this. <laughs> they always smile. The younger siblings always put their hands up like this. <laughs> and that was me. I'm the youngest of four. I had two older sisters and an older brother and my brother, growing up, we were the closest in age. He didn't treat me very well growing up. And to give you a bit of an idea, I would, you know, I'd walk into the kitchen, I'd get punched for no reason. <laughs> I'd say to him, what, what, what the hell was that for? And he'd just go, oh, I was bored. <laughs> or at school, I'd be, walking, I'd be walking past the lockers, I'd get squashed into the wall, there would be my brother or one of his friends... And he could also work on me psychologically. It wasn't just mind-numbingly violent things. We would get home from school um, and we would watch a constant... At 3.30, it was on constant loop. It was either Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie <laughs> or Get Smart. And we would watch that every day at 3.30 and we'd eat toast. And I remember taking the, my toast into the lounge room once and leaving it there and going back to the kitchen to get a drink. Now, anyone here with an older brother knows that's a mistake. You don't leave food unsupervised. And so he found my toast, and he didn't shove all the toast in and eat it. He didn't hide it. What he did, he took each piece of the square bread, and he folded it in half, took a huge bite out of the middle, and then unfolded it again, put it back on the plate. <laughs> so when I get back, my two toasts have got these two massive holes in it. Now, you can still eat it, but you know you've been beaten. It's a, it's a symbol of who's in charge, that whole. And so my whole life, I'd wanted to get him back for everything and I finally got my chance. When I was 15, my brother was 17 and we worked with my dad and my dad was a house painter and we would go to work on Saturdays and we'd leave the house, we'd get up at 6.30, we'd leave the house by 7. By 7.30, we'd be at somebody else's house painting and... We'd work through till midday and we'd sit on paint tins and eat our lunch. And my brother had a red esky that he took to work with him. In that esky, he had two sandwiches, a drink and two hard-boiled eggs that he boiled up the night before. He put them in the fridge. In the morning, he put them in his esky. Some of you can already see where the story's going, <laughs> or at least you think you do. All right, and, and so he, he would do that religiously and he... 
and he would eat the eggs at work. Now, he would crack the eggs against the wall or on top of his esky, he'd peel it and then he'd eat it. Until one week, my dad said to him, he said, I used to work with this guy back in Vienna who had hard-boiled eggs at work and he'd crack them on his head. And so my brother said, oh, I'll give it a try. And, he's, and you have to do it pretty hard. I know this because I'm dumb enough to have tried it myself. You do have to do it pretty hard. And so, but he cracked it and he peeled it, he ate it. And he was so proud of the achievement that he did the second egg as well. And then he did it the week after and the week after. And it just became part of his lunch routine. Get the, the egg out and crack it on his head. Mm-hmm. Until one week, he did something to me at school. I don't even remember anymore what it was. But I remember just sitting on the, playgr- on the floor of the playground and it was like a ray of light came <laughs> out of the sky and I saw what I had to do. <laughs> that Friday, he boiled his eggs and he put them in the fridge. In the morning, he put them in his esky and at five minutes to seven, just before we left, he made the fatal error of going to the toilet. While he was in there, I quickly took the esky back to the fridge took the lid up, got the eggs out, put them back in and replaced them, of course. The two hard-boiled eggs with two raw eggs. Put, it, put the esky back next to the front door in the exact same position. Even the handle was at exactly the same angle. It was perfect. And he came out of the bathroom, shoved past me, went out the front door to my dad's combi van. And I remember thinking as he left the house, this is going to be the best day of my life. <laughs> and, but... All that morning though, all that morning, you know when you do something like that and at the time you're going, how good am I, this is the greatest thing ever. All that morning it started, I was torn between the ag- this agony and ecstasy. There's the agony, or there was the ecstasy of seeing him do it but then there was the agony of what was going to happen afterwards and by 11 o'clock I got so worried, I cracked under the pressure and I went and I confessed what I'd done to my dad. Don't worry, it'll be all right. And... Uh, <laughs> He goes, so my dad, he's high up on a ladder painting some eaves. So underneath the roof there, he looks down. He says to me, what are you doing here? You should be working. Because my dad was always yelling at us at work, telling us to stop bludging, hurry up, stop throwing putty at each other, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and uh, he said, what, what are you doing here? You should be working. I looked up. I said, oh, I've done something really bad. Now, he came down the ladder he said, all right, show me what you've buggered up this time. Because my dad was also used to me spilling paint, trekking mud through people's houses. First time I worked with him, I was 10, I think, and I had to paint this strange thing. It was a luggage chute. These people had a little door in their wall. And in that tunnel in there was all their suitcases and everything. And I, it's the least visible thing in the house, so I got to paint it. And uh, first thing I did, I was 10 painted myself into the corner. I had to sit there for an hour and a half waiting for the paint to dry. I yelled out, but no one came. All right? And so my dad was used to me mucking things up and, uh, and all this sort of thing. So he said, all right, show me what you've done. This time I said, no, nah, it's nothing like that. Don't worry, just forget it. And uh, he said, look, I've come down that ladder. You're going to show me what you've done. And uh, I really was getting cold feet. He said, just tell me. I said, oh, I said, okay. I said, you know, Rob's two hard-boiled eggs, I've, I've replaced them with two raw eggs. And my dad looked at me. He put his paintbrush down and he shook his head. He said, son, that's brilliant. <laughs> he, said, I, he said, I can't believe I didn't think of that myself. 
I, he said, I should have thought of that weeks ago. <laughs> he started getting really cranky at himself. He said, right, you go back to work, I'll go back to work. Don't say anything. I Be back here at 12, all right? So we get back. I'm sitting on my paint tin. My dad's sitting on his. He's already trying not to laugh. And we're waiting with bated breath for my brother. And finally, my brother comes along and we're both watching him. We've got our eyes glued to him. And, uh, and he noticed. He said, what are you two looking at? Um, where's... Nothing, nothing. But I'm, of course, thinking, yeah, you just wait and see. And he reached in. He hadn't even sat down yet, got the first egg out. We had, without thinking, just like clockwork, cracked it on his head and the egg went over his nose, on his mouth, on his chin, eventually landed on his shoes and he's just standing there. It's the first time I'd ever seen my brother speechless. He's like, my dad, he's on the ground laughing. And, I was, and I'm looking at him going... Now he's going to blame my dad. But this is even better. All right. But then he noticed me not laughing, which was extremely not the natural... It was not the natural thing to do. And so, so uh, he said it was you, wasn't it? And by then I gave up because I was proud of what I'd done anyway. And I said, oh, yeah, it was me. He picked me up. He took me around the side of the house. He pushed me against the wall. Now I just painted that wall. So I'd paint all down my back. And you know what boys are like. He hit me once in the stomach and then just with the palm of his hand, he just tapped me on the nose so my eyes were watering. I was winded. But after two or three minutes, the pain slowly went away and that's when the smile returned to my face. And, and I just thought, you know, I reckon that was worth it. <laughs> two minutes of pain, but the memory of that moment lasts our whole lives. So now when he comes and visits me, the first thing I say to him, my brother lives in Berrydale. Uh, so between Cooma and Jindabyne. And when he comes and visits me, I say, geez, four and a half, half hour drive, you must be hungry. You know, I haven't got much here, but I could at least maybe make you some eggs or something like that. <laughs> he says, God, that was more than 20 years ago. When are you ever going to get over that? And I just say, I just look at him like very seriously and I just say, I'm never getting over that. <laughs> so one time I got him back for everything. Now, whilst that seems like a silly revenge story and uh, it actually shows a lot about writing uh, or at least the way I think when I write and I'll be really quick um, at least three or four things first thing is I've just taken it from straight from my own life and it's the old cliche but it is the easiest place to start we've all got a story secondly I could ask you at least 50 questions about that story Small details. Like I could say, what colour was my brother's esky? You'd be able to tell me it was red. I could say, what did we sit on when we ate our lunch? Paint tins. Uh, what sort of car did my dad drive? I think I mentioned it. Combi van. The main reason I mention it, yes, I wanted you to develop a picture in your head about this world that I'm describing. But the main reason is I just want you to believe me. <laughs> People believe you. I, and there's the main reason I mentioned crawling into that thing to paint because it's, that's how I own the story. It's like when you go and claim your jacket when you've lost it somewhere, you'll describe every little thing about the jacket so they'll know it's yours because how else would you know? And uh, the third thing is probably the most important though and that is when I said to you, oh, now you know where the story's going, I knew fully well that you didn't know where it was going. You knew I was going to swap the eggs but you didn't know I was going to take the detour to my dad which is the best moment in the story. And actually, every single time I've got a reaction out of you tonight, 
has been when this has happened, has been when the unexpected has happened. I got a little wave of pity when I went to Margaret River and no one arrived and no one came, <laughs> but I got a really good reaction from you when the librarian still made me read from my book. Because it's not what should be happening. Not just what should be happening. Who would do such a thing? And uh, it's always the unexpected. And it can be comedic or it can be sad or it can be, but it's the unexpected because that's what makes our lives interesting. And the last thing about the story is basically I've told that story somewhere between 1,000 and one, maybe 1,500 times and it's become my best story to tell because of how many times I've edited it in that <laughs> process. And I use that exact thing to write something like that ends up like that. I read and re... I mean, with The Book Thief, the first part of that, I read and reread and edited and rewrote somewhere between, uh, you know, probably up to 200 times. This book, thousands. God. Thousands. And, uh, you know, it, it's just not... It's actually unhealthy how many times... <laughs> I, I mean, I had to read from that tonight because my brain's been a bit scrambled from so many edits, but there was a time where I could almost read the first hundred pages of that book without looking at, looking at it. It was ridiculous. And, uh, but that's how much you have to want it. I think that's the, the last thing is, uh, you know, some people are just good at writing and it's easy. It's not easy for me. So don't, don't think for a second that, that you can't do it. Or it's, it's more you just have to have an iron will. And, and at the same time, a, a great joy for it as well. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs> we have a bit under ten minutes for questions before Marcus is going to be signing copies of his books. Can I ask how much do you know of the story or of how it's going to evolve when you start? How linear are you in writing? It, it's a bit of... I, I'm very structured. So uh, basically what I do and I, I don't have... I, I basically I have an, a notebook per book I'm working on, which is usually one. Uh, and... Like, I don't have six projects on the go. You know, people say, have you got a lot of projects on the go? I say, no, I've got one. <laughs> and when, when the new book wasn't working, people would say, just write one of your other ideas. And I said, I haven't got any other ideas. <laughs> I'm stuck with this. Every idea I've got is going into this book. What I do is I basically write chapter headings. Does it, do, do one of you have my notebook by any chance? Can you just, and... Uh, so I just write chapter headings over and over and over again and I'll see if we can... I can, I can give... I mean, you're not going to see much, but I plan everything really stringently. Thank you. Uh, so this, just to put into perspective, most... Like, for The Book Thief, I, I went through two notebooks or one and a little bit of a notebook. Uh, this is the ninth notebook for Bridge of Clay. Uh, it just... And it never stops. So I could open this to any... This is the very last one, so it won't... I don't think it'll have as many. Uh, but I can hold that up. Like, so there, uh, that's basically parts six and seven. They're the chapter headings that are in that. And I, I can look at one of those chapter headings and I can tell you what happens in that chapter. I want to see the whole thing. But what happens is you've also... I, I have a big structure, but I'm also flexible 
And I think so often what happens is something, one of the chapters you think is going to end up in, or is going to be in part two, might end up in part three or part four. Or it might get cuddled together or it might end up in part one. But I'm basically, I know, I can see the, I can see the world of the book. Usually it's the end that changes the most. So you can see everything that's going to happen, but it's the end where you think it's going to end there and it either ends before it, after it, or to the left or right of it. And that's the joy of it as well. But you don't have those surprises without doing the work of structuring it as well. I advise people to, to structure things pretty strongly before you start, in a way, even if it's just shorthand. Another question. <laughs> Thank you. One in the middle. Oh, Marcus, um, commonly overheard conversation is, oh, yeah, I've read the book, I've seen the movie, the movie doesn't do the book justice. How, how do you feel about the film? Yeah, it's always... It's always the moment where you go, yeah, thanks for asking that one. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fine. Uh, the film's... I, sometimes I talk... I, and I just... I, I think it's really important to be honest. I think you can be honest and kind about something that you... The writer is always the worst person to ask about the book if you want to hear a happy answer because the, the author always complains. And, uh, and I'll say, I basically handed it over to them. I took their money, uh, so I don't really have the right to complain. That said, it's been a few years and I can still tell... I think the, the film of The Book Thief and the book of The Book Thief basically were aiming for two very different audiences. They really wanted children to watch that film and it influenced too many of their decisions. I thought I was going to have no audience so I wrote it exactly as I wanted it to be. I think the performances in the film are great. Um, you know, Emily Watson and Geoffrey Rush and, and uh, Sophie who played Lisa was great. They were all... But it just... There was just something that, that wasn't exactly as I would have done it. But it certainly didn't hurt the book. It brought so many more people to the book. And I think there were moments in the film that I really loved. And there were some that I didn't love as much. And, and I think that's, that's the truth of it. But I don't regret it. I don't, I don't regret that it happened. I love movies and I love books. So it's always worth having a, a, a crack at it, I think. And, uh, you know, so it's a little bit bittersweet, though. I haven't... I had to watch it six or seven times around when it came out and I thought, I'll give it five years. I'm always saying, give it five years and, uh, and then I'll, I'll watch it again. I might watch it. My kids haven't seen it and maybe I'll watch it with them one day. They haven't read the book either. But they're still a bit young. But I won't be forcing them to. I sort of feel like you've got to let them be who they are, not, not say, right, now you're going to sit down and read my book. Why haven't you read it? So... Um, no, the film's just a totally different adventure and what you have to do is let go. Another question. Great, there's one down the front here. Thank you. You can all... I can also repeat it, yeah? With the book, Thief, why did you write it from death's, death's perspective? Okay, why did I write the book, Thief, from death's perspective? It's just my general sunny disposition. <laughs> I, it, it just made me have a lot of fun with the book. And it just seemed to work. I, honestly, it was an accident. All your best ideas rely on you 
stumbling across something and keeping it. it not your best ideas aren't de designed. It's almost like um, there's a great, and I'm not I'm not the hugest U2 fan, but I, there's a great documentary about them making one um, Achtung Baby in Berlin that album, and uh, and there's a mo there's the, the lead singer of that group, so Bono says. We're very, we have a very low opinion of the musician, but a, a high opinion of music. And, we're, and it, it, music is what happens when everything clicks together. And it's the same with a book. It, it's not that I, I have really, that I'm really smart. It's just that I haven't, something happens and I go, that's, I'm going to use that. And so in that case, I was writing with some kids at a school and I got them to write about colours. And, and in the first sentence, and I wrote with them, about colours, and I realised I'd written about three deaths. There's the sunny disposition, and uh, and then I'd written from death's point of view, and I thought, oh, I might just throw that into that book that I'm thinking of writing, setting Nazi Germany. And then I wrote, and then I had an idea about a girl stealing books, and I went, oh, I might just throw that into that book that's set in Nazi Germany. And then suddenly I thought, oh, those two ideas are actually really important because it made sense that. In a time of war, death is everywhere. So who better to tell the story? And the problem was I couldn't get death's voice right. He would say the most awful things, and I'm not saying what some of those things were. Uh, but I would feel like I'd write a page, and I, I almost felt like I had to go and have a shower or something because he was so he was just enjoying his work a little bit too much. And the so what happened was to get death right. He, it was when he became a lot more sympathetic. And I wanted him to write in a way that he was kind of scared of humans. And that's when it really started to work. So I hope that answers your question about why I chose death. Mostly it just made the book interesting to me. And I liked being death. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, the best is when some people come up to me and say, you've made me feel so much better about dying uh, from your use of death in the book thief. And I say... I'm really happy for you. <laughs> Hasn't made me feel any better about dying. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you, Story Thanks, Thank you, our audience. Thank you so much. Uh, he's incredible. I could I I could listen to him talk about writing forever. Mm, there were a lot of smiling faces leaving that theatre, let me tell you, on the night. It was it was really a great place to be and just a great vibes and so much goodwill, you know, both towards Marcus and from him. I have to say a huge thank you to Marcus for doing that for us because his schedule is already becoming jam-packed leading up to the release of the new book. And, of course, he's going to be touring all over the place, all over the world, you know, once release comes out. So we're pretty lucky because we got in really early with this and I would almost say we could be doing a world first here. So, oh, my goodness. It's an yeah. exclusive, Pam. It is an exclusive. <laughs> No, but thank you to Marcus and his uh, wife, Mika, and everyone at Pan Macmillan who, you know, just was behind this. And it was fantastic to just have Marcus in, you know, in a regional town, which is what our regional um, series of festivals is all about, bringing storytelling. And that's what Storyfest is about too, storytelling to regional parts of New South Wales. It's actually the thing I love most about Storyfest is that it's not just writers and, hey, I love my writers, but it's all storytellers in all forms. Mm. So they, they, they're, yeah, they're really extending it out to just storytelling. And yeah. 
I'm really interested to see what that comes out as in panels and workshops and conversations and but I'll get all the inside goss from you. Yeah. So we've got a website, storyfest.org.au, if anybody wants to find out more. And um, don't forget to check out Chloe Dad. You can find her on Facebook. That's C-H-L-O-E-D-A-D-D. And, yeah, it'd be great to, um, you know, have some people checking out Storyfest and, you know, any any questions you've got, send them through and, you know, definitely keep an eye on Marcus and the um, upcoming book, Bridge of Clay. Oh, yeah, going to be reading that one. We'll be a part of the, you know, 501,000 pre-orders. <laughs> um, but back to Storyfest for a sec. What I found really interesting was at the beginning, uh, Meredith was talking about a sponsorship program for presenters, writers, storytellers to be able to come to Storyfest. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I've never seen that before. Mm. So rather than just asking, you know, businesses and sponsors to just throw money at us, we just thought, wouldn't it be nice if they could have a little bit of ownership in the festival by, you know, maybe sponsoring an artist to, to come to the festival? Because, you know, as we know, writers, most writers don't earn huge amounts of money and we are going to be paying our um, guests at the festival but of course you know we're, we're starting from scratch with this and we're hoping to get some grants and things but yeah if we could get some support you know in the form of people sponsoring artists to come and speak um and you know there's a few ideas on the website if people want to go and have a look at that um you know and obviously we're targeting local businesses on the south coast with that but it's not not confined to that so anybody could could contribute and you know it's going to be a great weekend we're just starting fairly small we're going to have the friday workshops Friday night dinners and then all day on the Saturday, but maybe down the track we'll expand to a whole weekend. We're just going to keep it small and keep it great quality. And obviously Rights for Women are proudly uh, the podcast partners for this particular festival and we're so excited to be able to, to make this one of our slate of festival regional festival podcasts. You can get all of the information about that from our website on www.rightsforwomen.com. You can also go to Facebook at Rights for Women and Twitter and Instagram at W4W Podcast. And where can we find you, Pam? Because Pam is, you know, the best mentor in the world, so I'm always going to recommend you go and snatch her up. Where can they find you? Uh, PamelaCook.com.au and on Facebook, Pamela Cook Author. Excellent. Yay. And also, Kel, just one, one more thing before we go, um, just to thank Writing New South Wales for their supporting this because, you know, it's through getting the grant from them that we are doing the whole regional festival thing. So, yeah, thanks, guys, at Writing New South Wales and watch this space because there's more to come.